All right. How's everybody doing? Good. Awesome. Adjust it for the short guy. Okay. All right. Well, it's been said that a cat has nine lives, and so I think Andy just got his ninth warning, so I wouldn't drive home with him when you're... <laughs> thanks, Andy. That was great. And thanks, Joe, for leading us in worship. Well... Most of you know who I am, but for those of you who don't know, my name is Steve Grissom. I'm the associate pastor at South Shore, and I'm so thankful to be with you this, this morning. Well, I have the privilege, the responsibility, the opportunity to wake us up this morning after a long day yesterday. So we are going to unpack, uh, at least in part, Ecclesiastes 3, 4, and 5. I was talking with Vincent this morning, and Ecclesiastes is a, a crazy book, a random book, a strange book. It's almost like um, being on a roller coaster and going through a maze at the same time. You know, you just never know what's around the corner. And so 3, 4, and 5 are a bit of that way. So Ecclesiastes doesn't have the sex appeal of Song of Solomon, but it's still the Word of God, and there are truths here for us to meditate upon and to apply to our lives. As Pastor Mike pointed out last, last night, um, life marches on. Our writer knows this well. Life is like a breeze, a mist, or a vapor. Psalm 144 tells us that man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. We, we all know this very well. And so, in the words of Ferris Bueller, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. So we all know that, but we need to view Ecclesiastes with Christ-colored glasses, God-centered glasses. And so, as we look at Ecclesiastes this morning, I want us to kind of just stop and reflect and see what is beautiful. And we're going to see that it is beautiful in time. Uh, a key, you know, like most teachers, they, they learn more than even those that they teach. And so as I've been studying this book, it's, it's left me, if I could leave it with one word, it would be a sense of awe. That's what we're going to emphasize this morning and end on, is that we are in awe of what God is doing. So... Let me give us uh, a couple of expectations. Um, we're not going to cover these three chapters exhaustively. And so if you want to study them exhaustively, let me encourage you to do that later. I also want to give props to Stephen Lyle. All of the team did a great job, but Stephen really put in an extra amount of effort in putting together the discussion questions. So it's not a race to get through all the questions, but uh, make sure that you pay attention to those questions. Um, you'll be able to apply some of this more later. So we're not going to get through all of the chapters, um, but there's second expectation, there's something here for everyone. So if you've read Ecclesiastes ten times, or maybe this is your first time going through it, be prepared to learn. And third, I'll be done by lunch. So um, with those expectations in mind, let's look at Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We're going to read the first, kind of like Mike, I'm going to read and stop and read and stop. We're going to read the first 15 verses right now. So Solomon tells us these things. There is an occasion for everything and a time for every activity under heaven. A time to give birth and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to avoid embracing. 
A time to search and a time to count as lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. So what does the worker gain from his struggles? I have seen the task that God has given the children of Adam to keep them occupied. He has made everything appropriate or beautiful in its time. He has also put eternity in their hearts, but no one can discover the work God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and enjoy the good life. It is also the gift of God whenever anyone eats, drinks, and enjoy all his efforts. I know that everything God does will last forever. There is no adding to it or taking from it. God works so that people will be in awe of him. Whatever is has already been. Whatever will be already is. However, God seeks justice for the persecuted. Would you pray with me, please? Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for teaching us to obey it, to walk in righteousness, to gain wisdom. We don't want to walk foolishly. We don't want to walk as those who don't know the ways of life. So help us to number our days. Help us to understand that this life is but a vapor. And I pray that you will guide us to fear you, to respect you, to obey you, to apply your word to our lives. I pray that we will be in all of all that you have done. That we will see that truly you are beautiful. And truly all that you do is beautiful. We thank you and praise you for all these things. May Christ be glorified, honored in our time together. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, as we start chapter 3, it might sound like we've turned back to the 1960s. You know, some of you might know the, the song, Turn, 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 that was made popular by the birds. Well, Seeger's goal was for world peace. Well, here Solomon seems to have a different tune in mind. Well, what is that tune? I think his tune here is, there is beauty in God's timing. Again, we might not understand everything, might not have the big picture all the time, but there is beauty in God's timing. There's several key words that pop out to me as we go through chapter 3. We see beauty, brevity, and futility. Throughout the chapter, we see, again, like Pastor Mike pointed out last night, um, you know, our life is but a vapor. You know, it's here and then it's gone. So, it's, we, are, we are, see beauty, brevity, and futility. And as we look at the bigger picture, another important word for me in studying Ecclesiastes is to have perspective. The proper perspective to understand life, to understand his timing, to understand what's going on in injustice and wealth and politics and oppression. All these different things is to have perspective. We need to have perspective when life is difficult and we are barely able to bear through it, but yet it's beautiful. There's beauty among the randomness. Again, as we go through Ecclesiastes, it just seems like, is the puzzle fitting together here? There's a lot of random points. But in the midst of the difficulty, we are left aching and yearning for eternity. We need perspective for this. 
So as chapter 3 begins, we see that there is an occasion for everything. That there is a time and a place for every activity under heaven. It says there's a time to give birth. There's a time to die. There's a time to plant. A time to uproot. There's a time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. When I think of that, I always think of Kevin Bacon and Footloose. But there's no dancing for me. It's Baptist time. But, but throughout this poem here, that we see that there's a time for everything. Each of us could see this in our lives. We see there's a time to keep, a time to throw away. There's a time to be silent and a time to speak. This is good counsel for marriage. And so throughout this, we see, again, God's activity. But in this poem, there, there's these couplets, and it's apparent that Solomon is seeing there's a time for every human activity. So the writer asks a question at the end of the first eight verses, and it's a question that's worthy of our time. What's this question? Look with me in verse 9. He says, almost exasperated, and again at the end of his life, thinking about it all, he says, what does the worker gain from his struggles? What's the payoff? What's in it for me? And so you might think, well, does that sound selfish or um, self-centered? But the tone of the question isn't on material gain, but as has been alluded to already, what, where is the justice or what is the purpose of the work? So from this question in verse 9, it leads Solomon to several conclusions. As he has this inner dialogue, Solomon sorts through the chaos, sorts through the randomness, and verses 10 through 14, uh, or 15 even, 10 through 15 are kind of the apex of the book. It comes early on in the book, and Solomon comes to several conclusions. What's the first conclusion that Solomon comes to? He sees that God has given men and women work to do. Work is both a burden and a blessing. Pastor Mike, again, did a great job. Um, I'm going to kind of abbreviate my section here because of the work that he did. Just talking about work versus toil. We were created for work. A great book that I read uh, long ago is that God created us for work. We are created to work. Work is a good thing. It gives us direction. But we see in work... It's overwhelming at times. It can be discouraging. What's the purpose of it all? Well, we see God has made everything in verse 11. This is the second thing. He says, beautiful in its time. This is one of those refrigerator Bible verses, these bumper sticker Bible verses. This is a great verse for us to see that God is doing something here in the midst of what we can't see. God has a purpose. Purpose In the CSB it says, God has made everything appropriate. The ESV says, God has made everything beautiful. Which is it? Yes, He has made everything appropriate and beautiful in time. Time is created by God. And every moment has value and purpose. But we don't understand it all. We don't see it every time. And we talk about the tyranny of time. Time seeks to control us stress us out or make us worry that we have so little time to accomplish God's plans. We may be tempted to blame the advancement of society, technology, or Western individualism as we bemoan the passing of time. Listen to this quote by the Roman playwright Plautus. He expressed anger over the man who in his world set up the sundial 
who, the, who set up the sundial to cut and hack my days so wretchedly into small pieces. <laughs> and so we recognize this. We, you know, from the moment we get up in the morning to the time we go to bed at night, it's like, whoa, another day. And then again and again. We repeat the process and we see that time is fleeting, passing and moving out of control. Um, as a father of five kids, I, I don't know how many times people have come to me and said, you know, treasure each moment. You know, uh, take time with your children. Press the pause button. We all want to proverbially press the pause button. But we see, again, as time is moving on out of our control, we remember who is in control. God. God is the one who's in control. God is the one. It was so encouraging as I went downstairs uh, for this morning, bit this morning, to hear different guys just talking about God's sovereignty. You know, just talking about how it's a beautiful thing that God is in control and we must consider all that He is doing. So those, you know, as we think about time and as, we, as, as those who follow God, we must consider God has purpose in the randomness. That he created time and each moment is a moment to glorify him. Listen to what Philip Ryken says about God's perfect rule. He says, God rules all our moments and all our days and there's a definite orderliness to what he does. In other words, his sovereignty has a chronology. In the divine economy, there's a season for everything. This is what Solomon is teaching us in the first few verses. There's a suitable occasion or appropriate opportunity for everything that happens. The writer is not saying that there's nothing that we can do about what happens. His point is that there's a fittingness to what happens. God does everything at just the right times. One of the things that Pastor Mike said last night that I really enjoyed, he says... When Solomon turns his eyes on the Lord, he realizes this is something. That there's something going on here. You might not, again, you know, I'm tempted to be like, oh, I want to know everything. I want to have all the answers. But again, we can't know it all. We, don't, we can't trace all the steps. But God is doing something here. So Ecclesiastes teaches us that it's not all gravy. It's not all good. That there are difficult times. There is weeping. There is mourning. There is um, grief. So Ecclesiastes 3 that there are difficult t- teaches us that there is difficult times. So my question for us and in our small group time is how do we respond to those difficult times? How do you respond to the hard things of life? Andy talked about those hard things in his testimony. Matt talked about those hard things in his testimony. When those t- difficult times come, we need to have proper perspective from God. Do you tend to thank God only when life is going the way that you want to? We have to see God's purpose. Each of us could share story after story describing the events of your lives. Describing where you were unsure, where you were confused, where you were upset, where you were depressed, depressed and discouraged. You might scratch your head at the time, but now perhaps you understand a bit more of why you went through what you went through. As I was studying Ecclesiastes 3, it made me think of one of my dearest friends. Um, One of my closest friends is Adam Dorsey. We were co-partners in ministry, uh, church planners together in Canada. From 2005 to 2010, he went through so many things. He was a uh, country music songwriter, moved, uh, was very successful then, then moved, uh, 
the call to seminary, moved to New Orleans with Hurricane Katrina, lost everything, then moved to Louisville, Kentucky, finished graduate school, moved to Canada, only to find out once he got there that he needed to move back to Nashville, Tennessee so that his wife could get a liver transplant. Then to move back to Canada where his life would battle Crohn's, where we would battle difficult situations in church planting. And even now, um, he may be facing a transplant himself in the upcoming year. One doctor said no couple should have to have two transplants within the same family. But in it all, he just amazes me. He's amazed uh, his church now in Louisville, Kentucky, and so many of his close friends and families, how he continues to persevere and to see beauty in the difficult moments. I could go on and on about what God did in his life. You could go on about what God has done in your life. But Ecclesiastes is teaching us that there is meaning in the suffering, in the transition. Um, it's also teaching us to be in, as I've said already, to, that key word is awe. To be in awe of Him. To be in all that He plans and all that He does. We see that here again in verses 11 through 15. Not only is there beauty, but we see in verse 11, God has made man for eternity. God has made man for eternity. It's not just here and now, but there is an afterlife. There is eternity that awaits us. And for those of us who follow Christ, that's a good and glorious thing. We long for them. That's why Paul says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So God has made us for eternity. He's put eternity into our hearts. So in other words, we are made for so much more. Even Prince Joe appreciate this. The late musician um, could recognize this truth. If you don't know who Prince is, just Google him later. But I've always impressed by the worldviews in some songs. Prince wrote a song called Let's Go Crazy. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing it for you. But um, he, in the song it says, Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to get through this thing called life. It means forever, and that's a mighty long time. But I'm here to tell you there's something else. The afterworld. Well, Prince was on to something there until he veered off track. And so, apart from Christ, we will veer off track every time. But again, there is something more to this thing called life. So, followers of Christ, we see again more of what the writer is telling us to and ha uh, telling us in this chapter. And we must respond in awe of all that he has done. From a Christ-centered perspective, we see that Jesus Christ is the Lord of all time. He is the Creator God. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. Jesus Christ is not just a Savior to forgive you from your sins. Yes, we need that, but He also teaches us how to proceed. In all of our achievements, like Matt talked about, like Andy talked about, we recognize we need God. We recognize we can't comprehend all that he has done. And we understand that here in verse 11. He says, no one can discover the work God has done from beginning to end. So you must recognize, I must recognize we are not him. We were created by God to work, to worship, and to enjoy life. This is where we begin. Or we turn to now in verse 12. He transitions with a simple sentence. He says, I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to enjoy the good life. This is one of those sections where it's like, 
I'd love to have a, an extra lunch. You know, I'd love to have a conversation here. I'd love to be able to, to pry into Solomon's brain as to what he's talking about here. But he's teaching us that God's gifts are good. He's not talking about live it up, you only live once, life is good. But he's, he's teaching us that there is pleasure accompanying the pain of this life. So this is another point here. Another conclusion Solomon makes is that God is good. And his gifts are good. In verses 12 and 13, he teaches us that the gift, there is the gift of God whenever anyone eats, drinks, and enjoys all of his efforts. One of my favorite quotes is by Augustine. He says, Love God and do whatever you please. Such a freeing quote that if we are to love God, then we can do whatever we please. And Solomon seems to hint at that here, that we are to enjoy God. The New Testament in 1 Corinthians 10 says the same thing. It says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. One of the things I want us to see here in chapters 3 is the meaning of Ecclesiastes isn't that earthly joys are worthless, but that they are not ultimate. This is not the end game. These joys, these, these gifts, they're not the end game. We are to enjoy them. They're not worthless, but they are not the ultimate. They're not the end prize here. So God is teaching us that He is eternal. Everything that God does will last forever. There's no adding to it or taking away from it. God is eternal. His plans are eternal. Eternal. We see this in verse 14. That God, everything God does will last forever. His kingdom will never end. We learn this, um, those of you who've been going through the sermon series with Pastor Cody, we learn this in the book of Daniel. Daniel told King Nebuchadnezzar his kingdom would one day end. Daniel told, told, uh, tells us, Daniel 2 tells us that the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. It will stand forever. So we see that God's plans are eternal. And, number, and that everything God does will last forever. This is in verses 14 and 15. Everything He does will last forever. The things that we make, the things that we accomplish, all of the things that we do will not last from an earthly perspective. But we are to be in awe of what God does. In awe of who He is. So as chapter 3 comes to a close... There's a theme that begins and continues throughout chapter 4 and even 5 and throughout the next, chapters, next several chapters. And it's the themes of injustice and oppression. What's going on? Uh, in chapter 3 verse 17, Solomon, this is one of those turns in the, in the maze or roller coaster. Solomon starts to talk about the mystery of injustice and death and wickedness. And in, in 3.17 he says... I said to myself, God will judge the righteous and the wicked since there is a time for every activity and every work. So he, he understands, he begins to grasp that there is a finality, there is a conclusion that there will be justice here, but he wonders when that justice will take place. It's a delayed justice. We want judgment now. And sometimes that justice doesn't take place until death. It's hard to wait for that judgment to be executed though. We all again have faced injustices in our own life just like Solomon witnessed. 
And we are tempted to respond with frustration or envy instead of tranquility. I'm reading a book right now on contentment and it's making me frustrated <laughs> you know, at how discontent I am. But that, you know, that can be the case sometimes when we don't know what's going on and we're envious or frustrated and that's what a part of what chapter 4 is talking about. Let's read some of chapter 4. Um, again, we're not going to read the whole thing. Look with me beginning in verses 7 through 12 as he talks about injustice and oppression and wealth. What are we to do with wealth? We see that there's a loneliness of wealth. There is an emptiness of wealth. So in chapter 4 beginning in verse 7 he says, Again, I saw futility. There's that key word, under the sun. There's a person without a companion, without even a son or brother, and though there is no end to all his struggles, his eyes are still not content with riches. Who am I struggling for, he asks, and depriving myself of good things. This too is futile and a miserable task. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their efforts. For if either falls, his companion can lift him up. But pity the one who falls without another to lift him up. And also if two lie down together, they can keep warm. But how can one person alone keep warm? And if someone overpowers one person, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. So here as we think about the loneliness and the emptiness of wealth, um, we know money is not evil in and of itself, but the love of money is and so Solomon's talking about that and he talks about the discontentment here in verse 8. He says, There is no end to all his struggles. His eyes are still not content with riches. And so um, there's this key word of contentment or being satisfied in the he Hebrew. It's savah. And so it means, uh, again, it... It means to be fulfilled. It makes us, when we, when we are content, when there's contentment, it makes us ready to worship God. It makes us ready to worship God. So that's where we turn now in chapter 5. Again, we're going through here very quickly, but let's look at the first seven verses of chapter 5. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Better to approach in obedience than to offer the sacrifice as fools do, for they ignorantly do wrong. Do not be hasty to speak, and do not be impulsive to make a speech before God. God is in heaven, and you are on earth, so let your words be few. Just as dreams accompany much labor, so also a fool's voice comes with many words. When you make a vow to God, don't delay fulfilling it, because He does not delight in fools. Fulfill what you vow. Better that you do not vow than, than that you vow and do not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth bring guilt on you, and do not say in the presence of the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry with your words and destroy the work of your hands? For many dreams bring futility, so do many words. Therefore, fear God. So much here in these seven verses, let alone chapter 5. 
Chapter 5 begins kind of like a proverb. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. It's better to approach in obedience than to offer the sacrifice as fools do, for they ignorantly do wrong. The point here is that we can't be flippant as we approach God. We can be casual about a lot of things, about football, family, gaming, but we can't be flippant in how we approach God. There's many biblical examples of con and consequences, tragic consequences of those who approach God flippantly. And so, as guys, I thought it would be helpful to end with some practical points here from these seven verses. I think first, again here, we see we approach God with reverence. When you see the word fear God, and Pastor Cody's going to probably talk about this at the end of Ecclesiastes as well. When you're talking about fearing God, it's not this um, terror or, um, or just being overwhelmed with worry or anxiety. It's not that sort of fear, but it's a reverence. It's a respect. It's an awe of who God is. So the first thing I think we need to see here is that we are to approach God with reverence. Another important practical point for us in this section is, this is hard for me at times, choose your words wisely. Maybe your spouse has said that to you. Choose your words wisely. And we see again, it's foolishness. Proverbs talks about this of the man with many words, with flattery words, with empty words. And so, choose your words wisely. And then also, to obey promptly. Sometimes we can be afraid of that word obey. This means to trust. To obey is to trust. So as you look at this section, you might have noticed, what is, what is the author talking about here as he talks about dreams? He says there in verse 3 and verse 7, dreams. He's not talking about, you know, avoid all these dreams, don't eat Mexican late at night. It's that, not that sort of dreaming, but it's um, a selfish ambition. It's a dreaming big with ambition set on yourself. He's like, this sort of dreaming can lead to rec recklessness. But on the other hand, fearing God leads to righteousness. So, how do we apply this? Again, you know, I struggled going through Ecclesiastes because there's not a point-by-point -point practical personal application. Sometimes we just need to be aware of the big picture, be in awe of God fear God. But I think a, a couple of ways that we can apply this is to obey Him, obviously. And then another thing I picked out in chapter 4, this might not be the interpretation, but a bit of application here, is to invest in one another. Is to invest in relationships. We see the, the loneliness of wealth and the isolation of wealth. And so obeying God and investing in one another. So as I, as I wrap up chapter 5 here, at least the first part. Let us not be marked as foolish men who speak often, who make great promises and act impulsively. Instead, be known as a man who worships God with awe-filled respect because you know who God is and can worship Him. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You that You are teaching us that You are the eternal God that we are not, that you have eternal purposes and plans. And I pray that we will see that there is beauty to the randomness, that there is beauty to the injustice at times. That, um, not that the injustice is beautiful, but that there's timing and that you are just, you are the just judge. So we thank you for these things. 
Help us to fear you, to obey you, and ultimately to be in awe of you. We know that this takes place as we trust Christ. He is the Savior that we need. And we thank you for this time together as men, understanding your word and applying it together. In all these things, we give you the honor and glory. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.